Jesus, we are so grateful for the way that you love us, for this beautiful day that you've given us to enjoy, even as, Lord, we're gathered to hear your word, to worship you in song, to watch our family grow. We're just so thrilled, Lord, that you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You've called us into relationship with yourself. What greater privilege could there be? There is none. And so here we are, Lord, asking, trusting, believing that the reason you've called us here this morning is not simply to enjoy this beautiful weather or to watch things happen to other people, but to change each and every one of us with a love that will not let us go. And so we welcome you, Lord. We invite you into this place freshly. As we feel that cool breeze blowing, would your spirit blow throughout this place? Would your truth and grace and love reign? And would, Lord, the life abundant that we share this morning and this afternoon and this week be evidence of what you're doing right now? Have your way, Lord. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Yeah, you can borrow my jacket. Everyone's watching as Dave needs to give me back my jacket after the service. <laughs> All right, so show of hands, how many of you uh, would like to grow in your faith? Awesome, I see a couple hands not raised, but that's okay. How many of you would like to know Jesus more than you currently know Jesus? Awesome, all right answers. How many of you who just raised your hands would love to have your world turned upside down? <laughs> I see a couple bearing testimony because they know. If you hear nothing else this morning, please hear this. The only way to grow in your faith, the only way, is to have God himself turn your world upside down. Let me say it one more time. The only way to grow in your faith is to have God turn your world upside down. Listen, no one likes to have their world turned upside down. No one, including me. No one likes it when your, your best plans, your dreams, your hopes fall apart. In fact, being here this morning is such a tangible reminder of how our world as a church has been turned upside down because we are enjoying this beautiful space and living in this beautiful dream of a man who's no longer here. And that hurts. None of us like to have our world turn upside down. It's not what we would ever choose for ourselves. It's not what we would ever choose for those that we love. But there is simply no other way. But let me tell you something. Even while we can say that out loud, here's the temptation in every one of our hearts. The temptation is simply this. To take control to fall under the illusion of control. Why do I call it the illusion of control? Because we can do things that make us feel safe. We can try to put up boundaries. We can try to say yes to certain things and no to other things. We can try to be the ruler of our own universe. And yet every time we do that, we end up less safe, not more. It's kind of like the, the little kid who rebels against his parents, right? who wants to do things his own way, who wants freedom to be able to kind of establish his own life, and yet he's afraid of the dark. And so the way that he deals with being afraid of the dark is he pulls the covers up over his head and he is safe. 
How many of you believe he's safe because the covers are pulled up over his head? None. We all know that's, that's ridiculous. That, friends, is a picture of what ends up happening every time you and I try to take control of our lives and we rebel against our Father in heaven. We say, you're not safe. You didn't, you didn't work things out the way that I wanted them to be worked out. You didn't come through the way that I expected you to come through. And so I'm going to take control. I'm going to pull the sheet up over my head. I'm not going to look at you anymore. I'm going to make myself safe. And you never, we never make ourselves safe. We actually undermine that very endeavor, that very purpose in our lives. So a question for us as we begin our study this morning is simply this. Where have we fallen under the illusion of control? Because we think it's going to bring us safety. Has something come to your mind already? A place where you are actively trying to control your life and actively rebelling against the only one who is in control of your life. This morning, as we unpack the passage that Kristen read for us, I want us to really look at two points together. And the two points play off of one another. The first point is the love of, of power produces violence. The love of power produces violence. The second point is similar but a little different. The power of love produces victory. The power of love produces victory. So our first point, the love of power produces violence. Where do we see that in our text? Well, it might be a little hard because you didn't see it in front of you if you didn't bring your Bible. But Christian read a passage for us about Paul and Silas and Timothy. They're moving from Philippi, where, where they were last week when Tommy preached for us and delivered an excellent sermon. If you haven't heard it, go listen to it. But they were in Philippi, and now they're in Thessalonica. When they were in Philippi, who remembers what happened to them? Were they treated nicely? No. They were imprisoned, right? They were beaten. They, they were thrown in jail because of what they believed and what they taught. And yet they picked up from there and they went to Thessalonica and they did the exact same thing. They start preaching and teaching and, and leaning in and, and going, going after those who are lost and sharing. And it says, as is Paul's, was Paul's habit, for three Saturdays, three Sabbaths in a row, he went and reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue about how Jesus was indeed the Christ, how he needed to die and rise again. And it said that he proved to them through the scriptures. And do you remember what it said in our text? It said some of those who were there, some of the Jews believed. Many of the God-fearing Gentiles believed. But what happened with the leaders? Do you remember? It said the leaders were jealous. And so they went and got the rabble-rousers, the thugs. They went to the bad part of town, rallied up a, a group of folks, and came as a mob to the house where the disciples were staying. And when they didn't find the disciples, they brought out the homeowner, Jason. They roughed him up and brought him before the city council and there brought their accusation. And I want us to lean into the accusation just briefly because I think it, it, it shows us a little bit about ourselves and our hearts. Realize that it doesn't say they were upset because they had argued with the disciples and they still believed in their heart that the scripture taught differently. That's not what they're, they're not interested in truth. It said that they were jealous, or let me use a different word. They were threatened because their control was being taken away. Their influence over the people was being taken away. And so what, 
when you have a love of control, a love of power, what does it produce again? Violence. And we see that violence literally play out every city that the disciples go into. And it's no different in Thessalonica. And they bring them before the, the council, and they bring these charges before them. And I want you to notice about the charges. If you're a first century Jew, who's, who's your king? Yahweh is your king. If you're a first century Jew, you're in rebellion against Roman occupation. Caesar is the king of Rome. In our text for this morning, I want you to realize that one of the ways we know that they're not actually interested in truth but just trying to keep control is they pull out from their back pocket what I'm going to call a trump card. They pull out their trump card. What's the trump card? They say to the council, these guys are turning the world upside down. Do you notice our theme? They're turning the world upside down. They're saying that someone other than Caesar is God. This guy, Jesus, is, is king and not Caesar, and that's why we need to destroy them. That's why we need to take, get rid of them. So their trump card is to appeal to something that in their culture they know will stop the conversation, will quiet the argument, will shame and abuse the people receiving the label. Friends, in our, in our culture, we live in a shame culture. We never used to. We do now. And in our culture, there are all sorts of trump cards that we pull out and use on one another. Not because we're interested in truth, but because we're interested in winning the argument. We're interested in silencing the people on the other side. We're interested in making sure that we keep control or power and we don't yield any to others. Whenever, whenever we want to use those words, and you know what they are. You know those arguments, they're the isms. You're, you're this ism. You're that ism. You're, you're that phobe. You're this phobe. We, we communicate to one another in ways that shut down the conversation through shame. There are trump cards. And yet, what's the irony when we use those trump cards? Do they actually keep us safe? Do, do they actually help us be more unified with one another? Do they actually produce an environment where we can work through towards actual truth? Because there's probably sin that needs to be addressed. There's probably pain that needs to be dealt with. There's probably hurt that needs to be understood and, and entered into. But when we use trump cards, we're not interested in that truth. We're not actually interested in that other person. We're interested in quieting the argument. I want control and I'm safer there. When the truth is, we're anything but safe when we choose the trump cards. It's not just in our culture, it's in our families. How often in our families do we have these moments where we, we appeal back to past hurt or pain as kids, even as grown kids, where we're just like, well, you can't tell me what to do because when I was 16, you did this. And that huge trauma you had when you were 16 becomes the thing that trumps every other conversation. So I can be a complete jerk to you as my parent, as an adult parent, right? Or a parent to an adult child. I can be a complete jerk to you because of what you did when I was 16. Now, listen, I'm not saying you don't have to work through that stuff. 
I'm simply saying we tend to default to trump cards because we don't want to deal with the truth, with the issues, with the pain that are actually involved there. For those of you who've been around for a while, you know my story. I've shared with you about my relationship with my dad and how tumultuous that was growing up, how difficult it was, how abusive it was in different ways. I've also shared with you about how we've really worked hard to try to get it to a, a healthier place. And I want to tell you that one of the things that is constantly part of the rhythm of my relationship with my dad is he hears the voice of shame in his life regularly. He's constantly bringing up the places where he failed as a dad. And I keep saying to him, Dad, I don't want to play that trump card. I don't want that to be the reason why now you need to stay down here. You are forgiven. Come up. Come up. Perhaps you guys have relationships in your lives where you've been playing the trump card. I wonder if today is one of the, way, one of the days that God wants you to actually consider a different approach one that doesn't just stifle conversation because you think you're going to be safer when you win the argument, but instead says, tell me more about your heart. I want to know about what's going on inside of you so that I can create space to hopefully also share what's going on inside of me so that together we can actually work through this. There's real pain, friends. There's real brokenness. There are real issues that need to be dealt with, but not like this, not with the trump card. Not like we saw in the first century, not like we see in the 21st century. It also happens in the church, believe it or not. Finish this sentence for me. <laughs> that's not, we're not going to do it like that because that's not, not the way that we have always done it. We're not going to do it like that because that's not the way we've always done it. This is how we always do it. Tradition in the church has tended to be a trump card. I can remember genera a generation before I was in leadership, the big issues in the church were, are you gonna have contemporary worship, like with guitars? Because we all know that guitars were not in the Bible. But they were. Um, or we, are we gonna have the organ, right? Because the organ is the only way that God actually gets praised. The organ opens up the heavens. Nothing else does. Just ask the Israelites who dragged their organ through the wilderness for 40 years so they could also worship, right? Like that was the huge battle, a battle of tradition. And what happens when we fall into that trap? We divide over things that are not worth dividing over. And we miss part of the beauty have you ever been at a wedding where the organ starts to play? Or a funeral, singing how great thou art, thou art rather, with an organ behind you is glorious. At the same time, when you have guitars and violins and boxes called cajones, right? There's a beautiful mixture that welcomes us into worship from a different angle. And we miss that when all we do is play the trump card. Are you following what's going on in this passage? Are you asking for real what's going on in your heart? Trump cards, what are they? Because you see, the, the love of power produces what again? Violence. The love of power produces violence. But the power of love, friends, produces victory. Where do we see that in our text? Well, we see it first and foremost in the disciples. 
and the disciples who keep going from city to city to city, risking their lives. And let me give you a little uh, fast forward preview, laying down their lives. If you're new to church, you didn't know this. All of the disciples, except for John, die martyrs. And you could argue that John also died a martyr because of how much of his life he gave away in prison. All of the disciples die martyrs. They give their lives away. Like, wait, why would they do such a thing? Why would such a thing even be possible in their purview if they're trying to communicate about a God who says, this is what safety looks like. You don't have to try to take control. You can trust me. And then he's going to let them all die martyrs. How does that math work out? Well, here's how. Please don't miss this. These are the guys who literally had to learn the same lesson that we're wrestling with right now when they walk with Jesus. Jesus kept saying to them crazy stuff like the son of man is going to have to be turned over to unlawful people and abused and beaten and imprisoned and crucified. And they're like, what does he mean? How is that even possible? There's no possible way that that's true because we know what safety looks like. We know what control looks like. We know what this king, this Messiah is supposed to do. And so it can't possibly be that way. But then they watched as Jesus patiently walked with them and loved them right where they were at. And do you remember what happened? What Jesus told them was going to happen was precisely what actually then happened. These guys watched as Jesus was handed over and was beaten and was put in prison and hung on a cross and died and breathed his last and was buried. They watched with their own eyes and then they saw that same Jesus get out of the tomb and walk around, not for five minutes, but for 40 days, not with 12 people, but with thousands of eyewitnesses. They watched death lose and it changed everything, everything. Because what they thought was safety, here's control, here's what makes sense, not suffering, not dying, not having to go through where the world is turned upside down. Suddenly they began to realize that the world is already turned upside down. And what they needed was a Messiah to come and turn it right side up. Romans 1 tells us that we have indeed, through our sin, turned the world upside down. And that various things we can look at in our culture to see how that's playing out. He talks about our sexual perversion and the ways that we have turned what natural relations for unnatural relations, how that is an example of that. But you know what else he talks about there? Lying. Why? Because God is a God of truth. And we're supposed to be a people that walk in truth. Murder, why? Because God is the God of life, not the God who takes life. Talks about gossip and slander, right? Because again, God walks in the light. He's not in darkness. All of these are examples of ways that we've turned the world upside down and need a savior who can turn it right side up. And that's precisely who Jesus came to be and the work that Jesus came to do. And these disciples saw it with their own eyes and it changed everything. They were suddenly willing to pay any price to lay everything down because they knew that no matter what, love had already won. Love won. And it freed them to live their lives differently. It freed them to engage in life differently. And you see it in the Bereans in our passage for this morning because it says that the Bereans, when they heard that same teaching from Paul and Silas, what did they do? They searched the scriptures. It's why God calls them noble. 
the noble Bereans searched the scriptures and they saw that the things that Paul and Silas were teaching were actually in the scriptures and true and they believed and they came to faith all together and there's this great celebration but then the mob from Thessalonica comes and finds them there and do you know what the Bereans didn't do? They didn't join the mob. They didn't give in to fear. They didn't play the trump card. They protected Paul and Silas and Timothy, sent Paul off, kept Silas and Timothy safe, and continued to lean into the truth because they too had seen and tasted the truth of a Messiah that turns our expectations upside down, who says the way this works, friends, from the beginning is everything you think you know about reality is wrong. Everything you think you know about how to keep yourself safe is wrong. We just sang this song this morning, didn't we? I surrender all. We all lied. We all lied. I am the chief of sinners. I surrender some. I surrender a little, right? Like that's really what we mean because we believe the lie that says I need to be in control of this stuff over here because that's how I stay safe. And what our passage and what our God has said to us this morning is that, friends, is a trap. It's a trap meant to keep us from actually being safe. There is only one who has overcome the grave. There is only one who used all this toxicity, this anger, this rage thrown at him and overcame, who changed those very enemies into his family. What if, friends, we began to live in such a way as a church that said, we're not going to deal with trump cards anymore. We're going to put them away because it's not about me being in control. It's not about the love of power. Instead, I'm gonna to start to walk in the power of love. I'm gonna ask better questions. I'm gonna to seek to know the people around me, even those who call themselves my enemy, because there's real pain, real heartache, real struggle that's underneath all of that. And when we hear that, what if I chose to enter in and love? What if I chose to lay down my rights and maybe even my life to love? You're literally about to watch about a dozen of your family members here do exactly that in a river. Do you know why we baptize people? It's because we're saying in that act, I have been buried with Christ in his death and raised with Christ to new life. That very act is declaring the old me is dead, is gone, and the new me is alive because of Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And when we learn to live that way, friends, that's how the world around us actually changes. My old mentor, Tim Keller, who just passed away about two weeks ago, he had a saying that was quoted, I don't know how many times, when it comes to the gospel. He says, the gospel is this beautiful declaration that at the very same time, you are more broken and sinful than you ever dared imagine. 
and yet more loved and cherished than you ever dared dream. Those two realities at the same time. Friends, realize that it's only in Jesus that we have a God who takes care of the stuff that even right now you're tempted to think is keeping you away from him. Because what all of us know, even as I talked about some stuff that maybe you're like, whoa, that's a little, that's a little heavy. We all know that in life, we all play both roles, oppressed and oppressor. Injured and the one doing the injury. And so down deep inside of each of us, we wrestle with this reality. If the world really works the way everyone says it does, karma, justice, an eye for an eye, however you want to say it, whatever religion you want to use to describe it, they all have them. If the world works that way, here's what we all know down deep. We're in big trouble. For those of us who've lived on the dark side a little longer, it takes no convincing. For those of us who've lived on the light side, we are hoping against all hope that it's some sort of meritocracy where my good can outweigh my bad. When in fact, if you were to ask the very people that you've hurt, all there is is bad. The people that we've injured, friends, are the ones who would say to God in their prayers, justice for that dude, so that I can know you love me. When we get stuck there, friends, we get stuck in a world that's upside down, which is why the Lord Jesus came to make it right side up. He is the only God, the only Savior, who takes care of both sides of this equation at the very same time. For in coming and dying, what does he do? But he says, yes, there was something wrong when someone hurt you. Yes, there was something wrong when you were oppressed or injured or abused in any way, and there needs to be justice, and I'm the one who's gonna take it. Justice is served and paid by Jesus on the cross so that now instead of justice, what he could give is the very mercy and grace that we pray for when we're on the wrong side of the equation. Are you following? The reason why we celebrate Jesus, the reason why we go into the river and get baptized, the reason why Jesus has to come and turn the world upside down is because when we are in charge, everyone else out there gets justice and I get mercy. How does that work out when everyone's saying that? Have you been on social media recently? Have you watched the news? Have you interacted with someone who believes politically differently than you have or than you do? We have been trained to live upside down kind of lives where I'm in control and I need to be safe and so I'm gonna put my trump cards down all the time. And the way forward, friends, is to lean into the truth of the gospel because only in Jesus is the justice that we think we must demand actually satisfied. And at the very same time, grace and mercy flowing to all who need it. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of savior that I need.
That's the kind of God I want to follow. That's the kind of leader and shepherd who actually is safe to me. Because he's not turning a blind eye to what I already know is true of me. Oh, don't worry about it. No big deal. It is a big deal. And I am worried about it. He says, I see it too. Now look at my scars. See my hands and my side. And look at my feet. That's what I did. That's the price that I paid to deal with that stuff. Not just for you, but for the world. So that now, grace, mercy, and love win. Win. And we get to be those friends who live like we believe it. Did I hear an amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice in the privilege of being called by your name, in the privilege of being known by you, Lord. There's no one like you. There is no God who knows us all the way down to the bottom and says, I'm still going to love you there and I'm going to make a way to make you whole. Thank you, Jesus for coming and loving us there. But thank you, Jesus, for also, because of that love, now empowering and equipping us to live our lives differently, to not have to live according to the, the structures of fear that our culture and our own hearts want us to live by, but instead inviting us into a place where, Lord, we can taste and see just how good and sweet and life-giving your grace actually is. And we rejoice. We rejoice, Lord. We praise your holy name. God, I pray for all who are here, all who are online, that your name would be exalted today. That the places where, Lord, we have been tempted to take offense and to throw down trump cards, that you, Lord, would soften our hearts with your grace. The grace that we have needed and received in Jesus. And that we would be ready, Lord, to share that same grace with others. Lord, for those that don't know that grace today, I pray for them specifically that today would be a day, Lord, where lives are changed, where hearts are softened, where, Lord, the world gets turned right side up and we begin to taste and see just how safe it is to be cared for by the one who's actually in control the one to whom even death bows the knee. Hallelujah. We praise you, Jesus, even as we ask for more of you now. In your holy name, amen.